0: Concerts, sporting events, conferences, people are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. Yeah, put that on your outtakes reel at the end. Oh, God. (laughs) Okay, so Elliot, imagine you're just walking down the street, and it's a summer day, and the, okay, sorry, I'll, I'll drop all the goofy analogies to kick off the podcast. I was going to say, <laughs> is this another picnic table? I was waiting for you to, to jump in, he said, no more of these dumb intros, Merrick. <laughs>
1: First of all, let me just say, before we get to Merrick's tortured <laughs> ideas here, hope all the mothers yes. on this podcast had a great Mother's Day, to Claire... To Joe, who is almost partner, yep. and to Steph, of course, who was my long-suffering wife. So that's number one. <laughs> number two, I have to say this. So if you listen to Friday's podcast with Jeff's tortured allegory of someone leaving their wallet and keys mm-hmm. on a picnic table and comparing it to Tom Wilson. Just because you didn't understand it doesn't make it not good. I understood it. It was stupid. I happen to be watching some kid show with my son, Max, the other day, and there's a guy who leaves his lunch on a picnic table and goes to look at something in the forest and his lunch gets stolen. It's so awesome. I love this And story. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I cannot believe on all days I see this, it's the same day as
0: Jeff's tortured analogy. Unbelievable. It's brilliant. And that's the universe reminding you how smart it was. Do you not understand what that was, Elliot? That was the universe saying, hey, you need to pay attention to what Jeff is saying. Like, There's a lesson in there the universe was trying to teach you. Whether you choose to receive it or not, I suppose, is your own business. But that was the universe tapping you on the shoulder. The least you could do is turn around and say, am I supposed to learn something here? It's like matter, antimatter. There's no
1: energy created. It's all... One way or the other. It's the law of what? Conservation of mass? Yes. So you came up with a stupid idea and mm. YouTube, my son was watching, came up with a good one. All right, let's go. Lots of coaching stuff to talk uh, about yeah.
0: As I've told you before, Elliot, I'd agree with you if you were right. Now, <laughs> coming up on the podcast today, we're going to talk to uh, Kirk Muller. Um, and appropriately enough, we are talking to a coach on a day where this podcast is going to revolve a lot around Coaches, And we'll talk about coach signings. We'll talk about coaches parting ways with their teams. As we record this on Sunday afternoon, uh, two coaches are no longer with their NHL clubs. The hunt is on for replacements and the hunt is on for both of them to find new places of employment. Uh, We'll start with the Columbus Blue Jackets. And after six seasons, there is a parting of the ways between John Tortorella and the CBJs, as they're called. I don't want to say that this was predictable, but many looked at this season, how it was going, the lack of contract extension after this season, and said, "Eh, this is probably just going to resolve itself at the end of the season when John Tortorella no longer being around Nationwide Arena. What happened here?
1: I think you said it right. It was predictable. Even if you don't want to use the exact word or phrase, it was predictable. I think we all knew this was coming. I don't think that anyone needed to say Hey, we need to fire you. I don't need there. There needed to be any kind of long conversation. Everybody knew what was going on here, what was coming down here. And I really liked that in his last game, for example, he pulled the video coach out of the, his, you know, regular viewing area and said, why don't you come and change the defense pairs for a period? I, I thought that was a, a really nice thing to do. The key thing here, I wondered, Tortorella will be 63 in June. Does he want a coach and is he retiring? And I think the answer is bleep no, I want a coach. I think he does want a coach. I think he's going to make that very clear. Mm-hmm. To me, one of the most interesting conversations that's going to come out of this year is already the reports are out, and I believe they're true. Arizona's going to try to go young. So a coach like Tortorella, who's in his age range, we interviewed Bob Hartley last week. He's 60. You know, Tortorella will be 63. I don't know if ageist is the right word. I don't know if this is ageism because I'm not sure it's actual specific anti-age prejudice or it's simply a conversation about do you need younger people to relate to younger players? But I do think that especially the rebuilding teams are going to look at younger coaches. The other thing too I'm really curious about here is going to be salary. You know, we've talked about this There's a big conversation being held about how much coaches and executives make. Rod Brindamore has an extension on the table that we believe is verbally agreed to. It's a three-year extension at $1.8 million per season. It is well below market value. He could do at least double that if he wanted to on the open market. He doesn't want to leave Carolina and the Hurricanes know that. Now, what's going to happen here is you're going to see some teams say, well, hey, Brindamore makes this, so how can you get more than him? While, you know, people are going to say, look, like his situation is unique. He's not leaving there. He's not using his leverage. However, I think for a lot of coaches here, there's going to be a conversation about are you willing to work for less than you've worked before? I think some teams are going to squeeze it tight. And I think a lot of these coaches who've been used to the 2 to $3 million salaries, they're going to have to look at it and say, okay, how do we feel about that?
0: The way that I looked at, at Brindamore and coming in under market, I, I think we've talked about this before. When you look at your career, do you look at it year to year or do you look at the entirety of it? Like, do you look at it and do you say, you know, only a couple of years out, this is how much money I want to make? Or do you say, here's how much I want to make in 20 years? Because if I'm Rod Brindamore, where it might look like a haircut and feel like a haircut or coming in under market value, which he is, I look at the Brindamore situation and I say, he's coaching a really good young team. And it's a team that's going to be good for a lot of years. And can probably be really successful and probably win at least, at least one Stanley Cup. And then once you have that on your resume, all of a sudden your ticket changes. So look at Brendamore's situation. I say, this is an example of a guy, at least to me, Elliot, who's trying to play the long game here. Mm -hmm. And if you're playing the long game, you want to be on a winner because once you're involved with a winning organization, once you're a winning coach, you're a winning coach when it comes to being hired. All of a sudden, bring in this guy, he's a proven winner and that's where you get paid. Like to me, it's if you look at your career as a ladder on which rung do you really try to monetize the most? And if I'm Rod Brindemore, I say to myself here, okay, I know that my owner doesn't want to pay me what I'm worth on the open market, but there is value in me staying here because this can lead to a bigger paycheck somewhere down the road.
1: I don't believe that in this case. I think this is simply a, a person who does not want to leave that area of the, of the league. I had a really long conversation with another coach about this yesterday, and we were talking about the uh, responsibility versus personal happiness question. Mm-hmm. And this coach and I were talking about, Brynne Moore is happy. And what's the old line? Don't bleep with happy. Yeah. And if a person's situation says, I want to be here and I don't want to leave here, nobody has a right to complain about that. Like I support Brynne Moore's decision. If this gets done, and I think most people believe it's going to get done, but still- I believe his staff is fighting for their contracts too. I think that's the, we've talked about this. It's the last conversation here. Nobody has a right to tell somebody else they should do something that isn't best for their family or might make them unhappy. I understand the whole position about, well, you know, like you've got to do what's best. You know, Mike Babcock, when he got his big deal from Toronto, he was very proud of the fact that he blew the the lid off the salaries The way I look at it is, and we talked about this a bit last night on Hockey Night, there's a book I'm looking at right now It's in my library. It's called The Bald Truth. It's written by David Falk, who represent a lot of top NBA players like Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing. And what he would do is he, if he saw a deal that a team used against him that was sub market uh, or that someone else had signed that he felt was sub market, he would flip the conversation and say, that's their situation. That's not your situation. And if he felt he had leverage with a player, that would be his answer. Now, sometimes you don't have leverage. Sometimes, you know, they're going to say, all right, well, he makes this, so you make this, and you might not have a choice, or you might be forced into making a decision if they're not willing to go past a certain point. But, you know, the overall Brendan Moore thing, my position is if he's happy, he's happy, and nothing can be done about that. He's happy, it's the decision he wants to make for his family. We have to respect that. And other coaches are simply going to have to say, if I was being compared to that, I wouldn't like it but I would simply have to find a different way to uh, negotiate. And there's been times in my career where I've had the hammer and I've used it, and there have been times in my career where I've wanted the hammer and haven't had it and I haven't gotten everything I've wanted. So I understand it. I, I appreciate it. But I just don't think at the end of it, like, it's someone's life. They have to make the choices that are best for their family,
0: especially now. So back to Columbus then, what do you think of the John Tortorella era? In Columbus, like if you can isolate a couple of like for me, the first intermission of the first game against Tampa in the playoffs, like that is the crowning achievement for John Tortorella.
1: He keeps Bobrovsky in, and they rebound.
0: Well, yeah. and you know the and and the the speech in the locker, like all of it, like that to me is like if you're going to pinpoint one moment where like okay, what is John Tortorella in Columbus? That was it. Between the first and second period of game one against Tampa in that sweep series. That to me is John Tortorella in Columbus. Who's John Tortorella in Columbus to you?
1: Well, if you heard the crowd last night, oh yeah, they really thought highly of him. So this is the lesson I would learn about John Tortorella if I was the next team to hire him. John Tortorella coached in Columbus for how many years? was one too many. So put it this way, I think there are a lot of players who liked being coached by John Tortorella more than we realize. Many more than we realize. I think there's a lot more players who liked being coached by him than we recognize. Because a lot of us see the crazy stuff and we give that weight. Like, for example... So Aaron Portsline of The Athletic, who I I think is, you know, one of the best reporters in the league. You know, nobody knows their market better than he does. He did a piece last week asking people to talk anonymously about the Blue Jackets. And when he tweeted about it the night before, I think everyone thought it was going to be a hit piece, right? Mm -hmm. Like just you're given anonymity and you know, when people are given anonymity, they are going to use it to their advantage. They're going to clobber people. It didn't. I thought it was really balanced and I thought it was really fair. And for the most part, the players were complimentary of Tortorella. But there was one quote, and I'm saying it from memory. I don't have it right in front of me, but basically said, you know, you've got to fire the coach, right? And the person was even still fair to Tortorella, but basically said it was time. I think if a year ago, if Tortorella leaves Columbus his legacy is secure there. It was one year too long. And like, my question is, do you leave a place better than when you found it? And my answer on Tortorella would be, yes, he did. But there was enough happened that happened this year that I bet if everybody there could go back, including him, they would probably say, we wish we would have done it one year ago. Now, One year ago, I think they were considering it, and I do think Tortorella was tired, but what I heard happen was there were several very key players on that team that asked the organization and Tortorella to come back for a year. Hmm. And I just think that they, uh, they agreed to do it, and I think if everybody, Tortorella, the team, even some of the players would go back, they would probably say, you know what? we probably were one year too long. So if I'm hiring Tortorella, I recognize that A, I've got a good team, B, I've got veterans, and C, I know that I'm doing this with a certain window. That's the way I look at it.
0: So one of the questions that everyone's wondering now that you know John Tortorella has indicated, look, uh, there's still coaching life in me, is what's next for John Tortorella? Like where are the possible... Landing spots. I know a sexy story is the Rangers. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one would be a full circle spot, which would be the Buffalo Sabers. What do you think for each?
1: Again, I think it's going to depend on what some of these teams' goals are. Like, you know, what are the Sabers' goals next year? We know what the Rangers' goals are. I, I do think that if they make the change, and I, I think that's a decision that Chris Drury is going to listen to what his players have to say and kind of make that call from there. I think there would be interest if there was a change in New York in Tortorella. I don't know if he would become the front runner, but I do think they would have some interest. See, one of the things I'm wondering about is, you know, Tortorella's last job, he went into Columbus when they started a season 0-8, right? Oh, yeah. Like, what happens if he doesn't, have a job at the beginning of next year, and someone goes to them early in the season. Like, I don't know, but I could see that. Hmm. It goes back to what we're talking about. It's going to be an interesting off season because I think a lot of these hirings are going to come down to what these teams are looking for. Are they rebuilding? Are they trying to win? And also, how much are they willing to spend? And then there's the Seattle equation in all this. They want an experienced coach. I'll tell you something too. I I don't know what to make of the whole Travis Green situation in Vancouver either. The Canucks are, they're an interesting team. Like they wait and they wait and they wait and they wait and they say, yeah, we want to get things done. And they get some things done. They don't get other things done. It's, um, I don't know how to handicap what's going on there right now.
0: So what I've always been led to believe based on the people that I've talked to who I believe it sounded early on this season that Travis Green had either a number or a range in his mind of what he was worth and didn't want to come off that?
1: I think there's truth to that.
0: Is that still the case, though? Like, I don't know the answer. I ask legit. Is that still the case?
1: I think there's a number he wants. I don't know what that number is. I got to think it's probably over two, but I don't know that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the Canucks want to come in lower than that. And I don't think there's been a lot of conversation there this year. I, I think they've, you know, for the best I can tell is like the teams kind of said at times, what do you think about this number? And he said, I, I kind of like this number. And they're really, but there really hasn't been a lot of negotiation. I find it really hard to read what's going to happen there.
0: What I wonder about here is, and we sort of talked about this with Rod Brindemore, who, you know, comes in, you know, when this thing finally ever gets done, he's coming in under, under market value. Yeah. And I wonder what that does to, I wonder what that does to the slotting of all other coaches whose contracts expire.
1: What it becomes is, is it becomes a, who's got the leverage.
0: The reason I bring up slotting, because that's the normal course of business in a quote unquote normal season. This coach makes this much, therefore I should make that much. And everybody sort of agrees on those amounts. And you have a rough ballpark of what coaches are making, how they're all slotted and how they're compensated. This is the freak year. And this is a freak year that sort of winks at a few years coming up right now, where traditionally owners of teams may have said, okay, we'll fine. financially that makes sense based on precedent. But right now it's a totally new universe. Right now, it's completely different. So I wonder how many teams are just saying, don't tell me about the old model. We're starting a new one now.
1: I think you're totally right about that.
0: How much reset then is Columbus going to go through now with a new head coach coming in? So this is my
1: question, and I'm sure we'll hear the answer when Jaromel Kekalainen meets with the media. What do they see themselves as? Are they rebuilding or are they contending? Like he's going after a center. But is he keeping Patrick Liney,
0: or is he flipping him? To me, the first thing that has to be asked if you're Yarmo Kekalainen, even before maybe you start looking to go out and get a get a centerman or two centermen, really, when it when it, when it comes down to it, is what's happening with Seth Jones.
1: Well, yeah, you're right. I should have said that. That first, that is the biggest question.
0: That's the whopper because everything changes when Yarmo is allowed to re-sign Seth Jones and extend him. If he says no, then everything changes in Columbus. I, honestly, maybe maybe I'm too naive here. Maybe I'm missing something. But isn't Columbus's direction predicated on will Seth Jones re-sign or not? And if he will re-sign, then this is not a rebuild. But if he says, no, I'm not interested in an extension, I'm going to test the market when my deal is up in one year, That all of a sudden all bets are off.
1: Well, I think it depends on what you think you can get for him too, right? Sure.
0: But you don't think you can get a first line center for Seth Jones? My answer would be yes, but just centers are really hard to find, right? Sure. And if they're hard to get. Yep. Uh, no doubt. And so are defensemen like Seth Jones too. Like
1: I agree with that. Like you're not, like I'm a Seth Jones stan. Like it's not like you're arguing, you have to really argue with me
2: here. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the only thing that, you know, I think will make people nervous about Jones is there's a big contract that comes at the end of this, right? You're a year away from a contract. So, you know, what do you think you need to sign Seth Jones for probably determines a lot of that question. But I agree with you. If A, what does Jones think? And B, if the answer is no, what can you get for him? And I think you're probably in the same boat as with Zach Wierenski. Now, Wierenski is two years away from UFA as opposed to one, but you can extend him after this season.
0: Um, so the question began, becomes then, Tortorella exits, who goes in? So I think
1: it depends on the direction. What is the direction of the team? Because Arizona, I think, for example, is different. There have already been some reports that Arizona, for example, also the mutual parting with Rick Tockett, they're going young. Well, who have some of the names that have been out there already? Rocky Thompson, Nate Lehman, Lane Lambert, I think, would be in that conversation. You know, one name that makes a lot of sense to me there, I just don't know if he'd be interested, is Mike Van Ryan? Because Mike Van Ryan coached, was an assistant in Arizona, and then he went to St. Louis when Bill Armstrong was there. Mm -hmm. So that makes a lot of sense. I just don't know if Van Ryan would want that particular job. Like, I don't know. So Arizona, to me, what that says is they know what they're doing here. And that is rebuilding a bit. I'm not sure yet what Columbus vision is.
0: Let's get to Arizona. So the parting of the ways after four seasons, Rick talk at Arizona coyotes You know the name that I'm curious about just because it was an interesting hiring at the time. So I wonder what the pitch was. And that's Corey Stillman. So they got Corey Stillman away from the Sudbury Wolves of the OHL where he was coaching his son. I would have to figure that Scott Walker would have been part of that pitch to get him into Arizona. And I'm not saying that the the pitch is something along the lines of, hey, you know what, the minute the organization's done with, with Rick Tockett, this could be a good place for you and you may end up as a, as a head coach of this team. But I wonder, like when you talk about the you know the, this team wanting to go younger and wanting someone that relates to younger hockey players, Stillman's already there. The organization knows him. He's 47 years old. I don't know, Fridge. That's a name that pops right out. It's funny you mention this because I think you told me this.
1: And I've asked around, and the answer I've heard is not yet. Like, I think he will get his chance someday. I've heard Corey Stillman will be an NHL coach someday. But someone who was handicapping the situation for me said he doesn't think that's going to be the case yet. But they think he will be an NHL head coach someday.
0: Curious what, quote-unquote, happened here with Rick Tockett and the Arizona Coyotes. Do you have a sense of why he is no longer with the organization?
1: I just don't think that was a marriage that was ever going to last, right? So Rick Tockett was hired by the previous administration. There's a new administration that came in, Bill Armstrong. Tockett was still under contract. Just in texting around the organization today after the announcement was made, one of the words I got was awkward, just to describe it all year. You could kind of tell that, you know, they weren't on the same page. They tried to keep it away from the players. But, you know, people knew. People know. They knew that Talkett wasn't coming back, that they didn't see completely eye-to-eye on on some things. And I think everybody kind of knew it was going to come to this at the end of the year. I don't think this comes as a huge shock to anyone.
0: Any idea what's next for Rick Tockett? Worked as a head coach, worked as an assistant?
1: Well, I think I think he's going to have some options. You know, uh, Anthony Stewart was tweeting, of course, that he played with Ron Francis in Pittsburgh. You know, where does Jim Rutherford show up? And what could that mean for Rick Tockett? You know, one of the things that Tockett has a great reputation with, and, you know, it's it's not a surprise when you hear about what his, what his relationship is with Phil Kessel, is that he's one of the best around at handling players who are not easy to reach. Hmm. That he is fantastic at dealing with players like that. So I wonder, is there a team that thinks they have a situation like that, a a player they need to get to? That's one where Tockett really knows what to do.
0: You mentioned Phil Kessel there i get a quick thought from you on on Phil Kessel. I was uh, texting with a a lawyer friend of mine who works for one of the hockey organizations and he said, look at Phil Kessel, 20 goals again, shortened season. And he, he made the point that in a league that so strongly values offensive production, this guy produces each and every season. Throw in the 900 consecutive games as well, and there's Phil Kessel. I don't know that I've ever asked you this. What are your thoughts on Phil Kessel?
1: One more year under contract, right? Yep. Signing bonus, five million. So what's the actual cash? 1.8. They're going to see if anyone wants to go for that.
0: You know the storyline that I was trying to get going around trade deadline. As a talking point. Kessel back to the Bruins.
1: Oh, that's right. I remember that. Oh, my God. That was crazy town.
0: <laughs> I, I thought you would enjoy that. But
1: that's the thing. Like, I, like, I want, like, Arizona needs picks and prospects, right?
0: Oh, that's what they're after. Give me first rounders. Give me prospects. Give me kids. Yes.
1: Like, I wonder if that's what they do.
0: Well, look around the NHL universe and look at your goal-starved teams. And look what Phil Kessel does. He scores easy goals with that shot and he produces every year pencil him in 25 30 goals
1: one year of kessel just had as you say a 20 goal season
0: one of the other questions we have about the arizona coyotes is are they going to hire an assistant general manager that's a good question Okay, uh, on that, we'll welcome you to the program, everybody, now that uh, our little monologue is over. Uh, 31 Thoughts, uh, the podcast, The Coach's Edition, featuring Kirk Muller, presented by the GMC Sierra AT4. Welcome to it.
2: Takes a look. McDavid coming from the
1: point, moving up. His pass hit escape, and Nurse is able to recover and keep it alive for
3: Edmonton. McDavid.
2: Drysdale shoots. Scores. Drysdale scores. But the torch is being passed on from one great to the next. The century mark in just 53.
0: great call by harner Ryan Singh Connor McDavid 100 points. Listen, I thought in our sportsnet predictions, Elliot, that I was being <laughs> a little over the top saying, "Uh, Art Ross trophy is going to be 95 points." Uh, yeah, not so fast. Connor McDavid, 100. We're going to get to Connor here in a couple of moments, but I want to pick up on the coach's conversation from a couple of moments ago. Where is Gerard gallant in all of this? It seems as if you can make the argument for all these positions that become available that Gerard Gallant may just be a fit. Oh, yeah.
1: I have to say, it's actually surprising to me that this guy who took Vegas to the Stanley Cup in his first season, and their first season, doesn't have a head coaching job yet.
0: Yep.
1: It's actually a big surprise to me. I got to think he's going to be in here. No question about that for me. He's going to be in. I just believe it, and I think it's going to happen. Can I pick where yet? No, I want to see where everything ends up. But the one thing that is true is he's going to the World Championships this week sometime. So I could see some teams jumping in and interviewing him before he goes away.
0: You know, maybe the obvious story is, well, he did it with Vegas. Could he do it with Seattle? you'll wonder if there would be interest there from from Ron Francis. I have no idea. I know it's a really easy story. All I know is if I'm any team in the NHL, Elliot, and I have a coaching vacancy to fill, he's going to be one of my phone calls. He's going to be one of my conversations. Easy.
1: I think you just heard what I said. I completely agree with you. That's a layup.
0: Okay. Um, Mark Bergevin, contract extension. What do you hear? What do you know?
1: So... I I heard that they've been talking about it, and Bergerman wouldn't talk. Uh, Jeff Molson wouldn't talk. Everybody's really careful. You know, it's interesting that one of the people I spoke to about it, just kind of trying to gather some information, he said to me that you're working on this at a very tricky time for them, right? You know, they still haven't clinched as we do this. Yeah. On Sunday afternoon, they hadn't clinched their playoff berth yet. Now they're going to get in, barring the miracle of all miracles, but it wasn't done. Like I think Jeff Molson believes in Mark Bergevin. I do. I think he believes in his vision, but you know, it still hasn't been put to bed by the time that we do this podcast. I think they're, they've talked about an extension. I think they've talked about what it could look like. But, you know, someone else said to me, what if the way this ends this season, you know, Bergevin says he's tired or he's had enough or anything like that. So I think what they're doing is they're kind of talking about how they're feeling, where things are, how does Bergevin feel, how does Molson feel. But I do think there have been negotiations on an extension. and. The only thing with me is, I mean, you know how careful I try to be, Jeff. I don't want to say anything until we know for sure, but I do think they've explored all options. Bergevin's last extension was done, I think, 19 months before his contract was up. Mm -hmm. I don't believe the Canadians want to go into next year without some clarity of his future. If you go into Montreal with your GM in the last year of his deal, I mean, look how it's gone for you know Carolina in the last week or two. It's going to be a billion times that for Montreal. So I think they're searching for clarity, and I think they're they're working at it. But I do think there have been negotiations on an extension and also conversations on what it could mean if we don't get to one.
0: Connor McDavid, let's fly through a couple of these topics here. Connor McDavid hits a hundred points. Yeah. I don't know at what point it became obvious that he was going to hit the century mark, but it felt like it was really easy for him. You know, like it it, it felt like in his mind there was A, never a doubt he was going to win the Art Ross and B, never a doubt he's going to hit the century mark. As much as he in every post-game press conference wants to, you know, defer to all of his teammates and talk about their accomplishments and not his, Did you not get the sense that there was almost a singular focus with McDavid this season that he wanted to remind the NHL who the real boss was and who the best player was?
1: I totally believe that. I think the best are motivated that way. You know the one reason I think some people get kind of turned away from that theory, Jeff? Do you remember earlier this year when Matthews had the four-point game on the Saturday night and then McDavid went out and had five points against Calgary in the back end of the double header. Yeah. So we're all talking on the show about how there's no doubt that McDavid watched that and he's like, I'm gonna do better. And so a reporter heard that. I don't remember who the reporter was, but they asked McDavid that, and he's like, Why would you ask that question? So I think it <laughs> I think it 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 takes people away from that, right? You you hear McDavid say that. And and you're thinking, I can't really go with that narrative because he shot it down. But I, I do think that whether they admit it publicly or not, they're driven to be the best. They are demanding to be the best.
0: Elliot, you know why I don't put much stock in that response to the reporter about the Matthews question? Here's this question. Who is the last person that Conor McDavid wants to talk about? Jeff Merrick? And Connor McDavid himself. <laughs> the, t- the two are neck and neck. <laughs> but like he goes out of his way not to bring attention onto himself other than how he plays. And where he cannot help but bring attention to himself. It's almost like he's that classic, just watch what I do and then let me talk about something else. Let me talk about my teammates. Let me talk about something that I feel is greater than myself at the risk of diminishing everything i've just done but listen i've just done it in front of all of your eyes so that should be enough don't ask me to talk about myself that's my talking that's connor that's connor it could
1: be i was surprised by the by that answer though it was pretty it was pretty blunt it was pretty pointed but yeah i mean that could be the reason like I, i'm not going to argue with you certainly could be the answer but I've said it many times. I I think he's been totally shafted on uh, MVP voting most of the last few years. Mm -hmm. I think that he set such an impossible standard for himself that, like, even this year, I don't want to weigh into this because I think this is the stupidest debate ever. Like, what's Twitter? It's full of stupid debates. There's this one now about it doesn't matter because the North is soft. I mean, come on. Like... (laughs) Every division has crappy teams. Come on.
0: But the thing that people are pointing to to uh I would actually
1: say the, the North has less crappy teams than a few other divisions do.
0: But as people have pointed out to defend the North, you know, all of a sudden Sam Bennett looks like a superstar after he leaves Calgary and uh and Barabanoff in San Jose's point a game. And couldn't make the Maple Leafs lineup.
1: You you can go through the entire league with this kind of stuff
0: right it's just stupid i'll tell you what though that's what makes the playoffs you know after the first two rounds intriguing for anyone that follows a team in the north division because elliot as you all know in the back of everyone's mind and maybe it is just canadian insecurity in general Mm -hmm. don't you get the feeling that every marketplace there is a place in everybody's brain where they wonder are we good enough they look at Vegas, they look at Carolina, they look at Colorado, go right down the list, Washington, Pittsburgh wins the division, the Islanders are a tough out and say to themselves, I don't know if we're good enough.
1: You know, I I gotta tell you this. I guarantee there's a ton of there people there. Like, they're just I always laugh when people do this. They're they're marking tweets now and screenshotting them for the third round of the playoffs. Of course they're they are. like, I hope I get a chance to embarrass this person in six (laughs) weeks because the North Division winner wins their semifinal or the other way around. There's somebody down there, some crazy hockey fan in Vegas now. It's probably Gary Lawless who is (laughs) saving tweets about how good the North Division is so he can put them all out after Vegas beats the Canadian winner of the third round. I mean, it's it's so funny. It really is funny.
0: All I know is... Every fan base in Canada has that niggling little feeling that maybe they're not as good as the teams in the U.S. I think you
1: should do a five-part special on radio this week.
0: The insecurity of the Canadian teams, of every single Canadian market? (laughs) Yes. I just think that's a Canadian thing in general. Listen, that's more of a, a cultural kind con, uh, conversation. We worry
1: too much what other people think about us. We really do.
0: We've always been that way. It's always oh, how we've measured ourselves. Nice. But the thing is, you know what though? One of the best comments I ever heard about this was, was from Mike Myers. Mike Myers is on the Dave Letterman show and Letterman said, how come it seems per capita there are more comedians and comedic critics that come out of Canada than the United States? And Myers, in a really, really smart answer, said, well, here's the difference. Americans watch TV. Canadians watch American TV. I thought there's a really smart response. There's an ironic layer that exists between what Canadians consume and the actual event itself, whereas Americans are just consuming what they're involved in, that there's a critical awareness about U.S. culture that the United States doesn't have because they're it. Anyway, getting sidetracked. I want to ask you a couple of things really quickly on some things that happened this season. Namely, are three Philadelphia Flyers going to win the Pittsburgh Penguins the Stanley Cup? Ron Hextall, Brian Burke, who played for the Maine Mariners, and Jeff Carter. What a story this has been, Elliot. I know Nashville was a great story to get to the playoffs. But man, the Pittsburgh Penguins win the division. I Like I told
1: you. The 30 for 30, if the Penguins win the Stanley Cup, about how Brian Burke saved everything, it's
0: going to be something else. <laughs> this really Listen, this really is a remarkable achievement for Pittsburgh.
1: I still have another week to really sort out my ballot, but you know, right now my heart trophy ballot is McDavid 1, Matthews 2, Crosby 3. Mm-hmm. Carter is unbelievable. Uh, you know what Carter it reminds me of? And I've learned this myself. It's the danger of comfort. He was comfortable in L.A., didn't want to leave. I totally understand why. His family very happy there. Now goes to Pittsburgh. Sometimes we just need to get jolted out of our system.
0: And if you're going to get jolted out of your system, I mean, Pittsburgh and being in the same room as Sidney Crosby, where there is a work rate established by the captain that you're embarrassed not to follow. Like that's just like, how many times have you talked to someone that went through the Pittsburgh experience? And said, man, like I was embarrassed not to work as hard as Sidney Crosby. I was never going to be as good as him, but that guy worked harder than all of us. And it made everyone embarrassed who didn't try to work the same. Like that's why you can make the argument that as far as Hart Trophy candidates, Crosby should always be in the conversation because of what he sets in Pittsburgh. Ask everybody who's been through Pittsburgh. They all say the same thing.
1: I'm good with that.
0: The first round series I'm perhaps looking most forward to
1: Florida, Tampa.
0: Is Florida, Tampa.
1: You know, I got to say this. If it, if it's, if I didn't live in Canada, I probably wouldn't feel this way. But as a Canadian, I, I think it has to be Montreal, Toronto. Just because we haven't seen this for a generation.
0: There are two series. One is the historic pull at your heartstrings. Uh, you know, it's been too long since these two have met in the playoffs, Montreal, Toronto. But there's the other, which is these two teams who share a state have never it against each other in the playoffs and it is long overdue and that's Florida Tampa
1: whoever plays Minnesota is going to be a good series
0: too uh, I agree uh, and all I know is the best games I've seen this season are Minnesota Vegas mm-hmm. those have been the best games this season period do you have a quick thought on Florida Tampa oh my goodness that's that's going to be something else let's just hope that it goes seven games because of game seven between these two teams, we've all been waiting. How many times have we been waiting for Tampa and Florida to be good at the same time? Forever, right? Mm-hmm. Here we are. And here we are. Quick break. We're going to come back and talk to Kirk Muller. wonder if he fills one of these coaching vacancies. Uh, we'll talk to Kirk Muller on 31 Thoughts, the podcast in a moment. We are pleased to be joined by Kirk Muller, who, uh, considering his background both in coaching and in playing as well, Elliot, really doesn't need much of an introduction on a podcast like this. So we'll start off with Kirk. Hello, how are you? What has Kirk Muller been doing lately? Well, first of all,
3: hi guys. Uh, I've actually been down here in California uh, for the big reason that I just became a grandfather for the fourth time. And uh, Came down to visit my daughter, who's married to Brad Malone, involved with uh, Bakersfield uh, Condors. So nice. I'm watching a lot of American Hockey League games and uh, enjoying my, my new granddaughter.
0: What, what is the feeling of becoming a grandfather? And by the way, you probably look like the youngest grandfather in North America. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I've been nonstop. I have a, a three-year-old down here as well. So I haven't had time to shave. So I don't look like Elliot did in the playoffs, but, uh, but, no, you know what? I'll tell you what, it's a, the NHL is a grind and it's a busy schedule, but, uh, keeping up to a three year old and a newborn, I think, uh, I think it beats it, but it's, it's been, it's been amazing. It's been, uh, special that I'm able to be here and, uh, it's, it's been fun. It's been fun. I hope you and Stacy
1: spoil those grandkids rotten. That's what you're there for. Yep.
3: Yeah, you know what? We just absolutely came in and uh, took over the grandkids and all the good habits that they've been working on, um, especially everyone who has a three year old knows. We've kind of just spoiled them. So we're going to tiptoe out of here and head back to Canada soon. And uh, uh, they're going to have to break all the bad habits.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, Kirk, you've had some time to sit back and think the Canadians made a a coaching change back in February. And just, you know, in the couple months since, what do you look back about? What do you think about? And how much do you watch them uh, right now?
3: When you're out here, that's the one thing you get to see the Eastern games and then catch the Western games because of the Mm three-hour time change. So... You know, you get that benefit of seeing uh, you know more games usually. But I've caught Brad's games, uh, a lot of the American Hockey League games because they're still active out here playing in Bakersfield. So you know, it's good, uh, you know, a good chance to sit back and watch games and not have to not being involved with one team. So you can be neutral mind on everything. But no, I've caught Montreal playing, and uh, you know they they ran into some injuries to some key guys that have. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, like any team, you know, it's it's tough when you lose key guys uh, like Gallagher and, you know, Paulie Byron's a big uh, key to the team as far as uh, a core guy the a glue guy and all that, and with, obviously, the carry. So, you know, they've uh, they've gone through the challenges of, of a schedule, a tough schedule with injuries and all that, but they're a really good group of guys and uh, they got a lot of character there. They got a lot of uh, good additions and, and I wish them well. I know what it's like to be in a pressure market like that and uh, how hard it is. And this is a tough year in the world for COVID and everything and a challenging year. And, you know, I hope those guys do well because they're good people.
0: You you, You mentioned that marketplace and, you know, Jonathan Drouin has taken leave from the team right now. And we've talked a lot about the pressures on hockey players in the big markets and have made the point previous that Montreal might just be top of that list Give us a sense of what that market is like and the nature of the pressure that's on. Well, really, everybody in the Montreal Canadiens organization.
3: Well, it's what makes it a special place, and uh, the fans are passionate. The media, as we know, is, is uh, a lot of pressure. Uh, passionate, you know, the whole province, the whole Montreal fans within the country, the North America, the world, you know, and the history. There's high expectations, but. I think that's what you really, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, coaching there and playing there and feeling honored to be a part of that organization. But it's like when I got traded there uh, uh, as a player and D. Cardinals said to me right off the start, one of the first things he said, he goes, I got to tell you something. I know you came from New Jersey and, uh, you know, the market down there, but just understand that if you're the Goat today. <laughs> Don't worry <laughs> about it because tomorrow somebody else will be, or it's a news story. So if you can understand that it's a day-to-day event, uh, what happens today is old news tomorrow. And always understand that if you're playing well, you're probably not playing as well as you're being told you are. And if you're playing poorly, You'll probably not be playing as poorly as you are. So Mm. the key is longevity and, and being even keel and, and riding the waves. And if you could do that in those markets like Toronto and Montreal and New York and all that, I think, you know, you get, you understand it once you're there that you're not going to be great all the time. You're not going to be, you know, poor all the time, but just ride the waves and be consistent and just stay the course. And if you have that confidence of doing that, then. You know, you see people do well in those markets because they thrive on the, ex- the other part of it, which is the, the pressure and the excitement and the, the demands and everything. And I tell you that as a player, you know, I, I love playing there because of those reasons.
1: It's so funny that Jamie Baker always said that when Baker ended up in Toronto, Wendell Clark told him, listen, you're never as good as they say you are and you're never as bad as they say you are. I've always remembered that. Like Kirk, you and Wendell must, you know, go read the same books because it's the exact same advice.
3: Well, I know Wendell doesn't read. So, uh, so that's not, uh, don't tell him I said that, but, uh, no, uh, no, it's true. You know, Wendell's been involved at the least, uh, as a player, obviously, his great uh, career there. And then he came back and, you know, he understands it, you know, the the pressure. the And, and it all comes down to the great thing about it is both cities have uh, fabulous, uh, passionate fans and uh, they want to win. And uh, if you're going to be that passionate and you want to win, uh, there comes consequences and demands. And But I'll tell you what. I always say this. When I was in Montreal playing and you come off a long road trip from out west and you're exhausted, And the hardest game to play is that first game back home. And, you know, it's because of the travel, the jet lag, the three-hour time change. And you get back and the fans are like, wow, we have not seen you in two weeks. You know, here's my ticket. I'm coming to the game. I want to see you guys dominate. You're back home. You should be fired up. And you go out and you're like, I got nothing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's the worst feeling in the world. And, uh. and I remember Montreal, you know, that first period and we would come out west and we would have a great record of maybe five wins and seven games and feel good and go back and you got nothing. And and right off the hop, those fans would be letting you know what, you know, you'd hear a few boos and all that. And you're like okay, I better pick up my game. So, you know, it's amazing how the mind is powerful and it gets you jump-started, you know, when you got nothing in the tank. And that's pure mental, (laughs) pure uh, fan pressure, which makes it awesome.
0: I am curious about, you mentioned earlier on uh, the playoffs. And I'll tell you what, that was, you know, last year in the bubble, very challenging time for everybody We understand that. And you're behind the bench and you're able to sweep the Pittsburgh Penguins. And this is a season where, come trade deadline time, Montreal was all out. And they find themselves in the, uh, in the bubble in the postseason. And you did something that was pretty special. I guess this is a long-winded way, Kirk, of me asking, how did you do that?
3: It's really interesting when you look at it. You know, COVID hits. We're sitting in Montreal, and we play Buffalo that night. Looking back at it, that game never happened. If Buffalo beats us that night, they would have advanced and went to the bubble and, uh, we would not have. The game doesn't happen. We end up being the team that gets in the uh, last. So here we are, a non-playoff team. Uh, circumstances happen. We get a chance to go into Toronto and compete in the playoffs. You know, basically what happened is, you know, we got together. We prepared a lot of meetings because there's a short camp. And I give the players credit. And, uh, we did our meetings. We did our prep. We walked in and I thought we we're, you know, a well prepared team that was ready to go. And, uh, we upset uh, a good hockey team and surprised a lot of people. And when that happens, you know, it's quickly we see every year, once you get into the playoffs, anything can happen and, and momentum kicks in, confidence kicks in, timing kicks in. And then unfortunately, you know, Chloe got sick. But the nice thing was, within a day, we were well aware that he had recovered and he was in good shape and he was going to be fine. So it gave us a chance to go. We can now just focus on round two with the team that was Philadelphia, that was the hottest team uh, in the league going into the bubbles. And, uh, again, the guys performed well. They played hard, and uh, we almost did an upset uh, in round two.
1: The guy who I think really took a huge step was Suzuki.
3: Yeah, you know what? And I think that was the thing that happened that was great was uh, it gave Suzuki and KK, some of these young guys, some uh, an opportunity to, to play and gain confidence. And, and uh, hey, listen, it was a, a unique situation. We're in Toronto. All focus is on the playoffs in, in two places, Edmonton and Toronto. And these guys shine under the under the pressure. So he's a very smart player. He's a very methodical player. That was his opportunity to say, hey, you know, listen, I was a pretty darn good player in junior and had great success. And I think I could do that at this level as well. So, you know, it showed that, you know, what a good NHL player this kid is and what he's going to be. He's going to get better and better.
0: This may be unfair, and I almost hate doing this to players, but is there anyone you couldn't compare... Nick Suzuki, two in the NHL. He's a huge fan of Patrice Bergeron. He trains in Stratford with uh, Joey Hishon and loves working out with Ryan O'Reilly. Is there anyone you could compare him to?
3: Well, I thought Bergeron is uh, is a good example in a way because Suzuki, two things: he he takes a lot of pride in in his game offensively, and he takes a lot of pride in the game uh, without the puck. and And I think that gives him the ability to be a, a two way player and. Both those players, they don't play with a mean streak, but they have a little bit of edge to them. That they're competitors, and you're not going to get them off their game. They're both going to be focused on the agenda that's at hand, and and, you know whether it's uh, you know trying to shut down uh, another elite player or they got to score a big goal. And uh, he's a mature kid for his age, and he knows how to play the game, and uh, he's smart. So when when you compete and you're smart. You're just going to get better and better in any sport or anything you do. And and that's what Suzuki uh, has the potential of being. What are your thoughts on Kotkaniemi? KK is a, a kid that's in a in that progress of getting better and better. You know, he, he came over and he's got the, the body the he's still filling out. And, you know, people forget the NHL is tough and, you you know you're playing against men quickly and you know i know that he you know he's playing against men overseas before he came over and everything but i tell you it takes a couple of years to get your feet wet and understand who your opponents who you're playing He had to learn the north american game a little bit you know as well so that takes a little bit of time just that alone and so if you see the progress in him he's uh he's a kid that's starting to get that that more man strength you know his skating's improved, his strength's improved. He's got a heck of a shot. You know he sees the ice well. He's another kid that's very uh, determined and uh, you know uh, wants to get better, wants to be a part of the, a winning team. And I think it just it's taken him. He's you know he's he's still a young, he's still one of the youngest players in the NHL. And you know when you put that all together, you got a kid that's got a lot of potential. And again, I say this all the time: if you're willing to want to get better you probably will get better and those two guys have that type of attitude hmm.
0: we asked bob hartley this question we just had him on the uh, the podcast not too long ago and we asked him about some of his favorite coaches not necessarily mentors but coaches that he's admired a couple of things one when did it dawn on you that coaching might be something you'd be interested in and who are the coaches kirk that had the most or the biggest effect on you all your way through the nhl
3: well, let's. Uh, I'll start with uh, some coaches. Yeah, definitely that I had as a player. Pat Burns was amazing. When I when I got to Montreal, I, he was the one coach that I'd say he had that ability to grab you as a team. And although I hated his practices because there was so much of <laughs> grinding one on one and defensive grinding, or they weren't they weren't sexy fancy drills that you did with Burnsy, but. Uh, you know what? He, he, he had the ability to say, listen, our game is really simple and we're probably not going to surprise anybody with any little tricks or anything. Like when I was playing in Montreal, mm-hmm. but this is who we are. This is what you're going to expect. And we're going to play our game or we're going to beat you at our game. And he always get, made you had that feeling like you're going to win every single game. And you did it because of he expected you to play the, the team game and do your role at the best that you're capable of doing. And that was it. That was simple. He he everyone's like, oh Burnsey was a real tough guy. I mean, he, which he was, but he was so fair and he's like, well what are you surprised about? You didn't do your job tonight, so I didn't use you. Or hey you played well, but I expect you to play well and guess what? You got to do it again tomorrow night because if you want to win, you got to be consistent. And I I love Bernsey because you knew exactly where you stood with Bernsey. Jock uh, Demers having to come in after Burns, even as in Montreal, and we won a cup with him. Totally different personality, totally different coach. But, you know, you look at Jock, and here's a guy that, you know, won Coaches of the Year. He won a Stanley Cup. And his strength was he never pretended like he had all the answers and he, he was the, the best coach in the league. He was a great players' coach. He wanted feedback from his players. He wanted you to to go into his room and say, listen, uh, we practiced too hard. Uh, I'm not sure about the travel. Uh, What about this? You know, here's some suggestions. And you know what? He took it and he would use it. And he would say, here's the deal, guys. I'll take your, I remember Carbo and Patrick and I would walk in and throw suggestions. He goes, hey, listen, I'll shorten practice. I'll do this. But guess what? Uh, It's up to you guys to make sure we get the the results. (laughs) And uh, we win. So, that was his ability, and he gave you the uh, freedom to play your game, uh, but within the, you know, the team concept. So great characters of two different guys there. And uh, and I finished my career with Hitch, and uh, I, the great thing about Hitch was he, was he was fun, and I had him at the end of my career as a veteran, and we had a veteran team in Dallas. We went to the finals together, and, you know, it was fun because I, I don't know if I was young, if I, he would have got under my skin and been tough. But as a veteran guy, he would challenge you and push us and push us and push us. And, you know, we could handle it, but you know what? He had great records, and he was probably the coach that I played for that was so well-prepared. Mm-hmm. There was never a thing that you didn't know about your opponent. You walk in the morning, everything's organized, everything's prepared, uh, everything's started out, uh, he's up early in the morning, he's at the rink early. And so for a player to walk in and uh, be prepared to play a hockey game, I think Hitch was the, one of the best coaches for me as a player in in that circumstances. Hitchcock has coached recently. Do you think Pat Burns could have coached today's player? I think Burnsy could uh, because – From the outside and you see Bernsey and if you're a fan, you know, like he, you know, his success in Jersey and Toronto and Montreal and, you know, good teams and everything, you know, he looked like that hardcore guy, you know, and he was, and I just described him as a, as a player and, you know, guys, Dougie Gilmore and Wendell and those guys and they are in Toronto. They loved him and everything. But you know what? When you're playing for him, there's that, there's that soft spot that he really related to his players. And I think that's huge today. Like you can be honest with the players today and they respect that and they love that. But you gotta build relationships. And Bernsey he wasn't the cozy fuzzy guy, but he certainly mm-hmm. he certainly knew his players and then you know, it's a different generation, but then you know, he'd go out and have a beer with the guys and be comfortable to to spend an afternoon with them and they're comfortable with him. So they knew that he had their back. And they had his back, and and I think it, the same thing applies today. It just it's all about relationships with your players and getting them to know that you, they trust you, that you're you're there to make them better and uh, to get them
0: to win hockey games. Okay, I'm going to throw something at you that you probably weren't expecting to talk about today, but, and I can al- I can already hear Elliot rolling his eyes. Oh, juniors? No, oh no, I'm not going to. Yeah, what happened with Guelph and the Team Canada? No, no, I'm not going to ask about all that stuff. But I am going to ask you, because I'm forever fascinated, and I always maintain that 1987 was the greatest year for hockey, period.
3: Oh,
1: actually, this is a good question.
0: Okay. Canada Cup was great Stanley Cup Final was great Easter Epic, like 87 was fantastic and the one thing about 87 that I really loved was Rendezvous oh. two game series, it replaced mm-hmm. the All-Star game at the Colisee in Quebec City uh, NHL Stars win one Soviet Union wins one and the hockey was fantastic and there you were from an international site the ceremonial face-off, we are just about ready for the face-off. Game one of Rendezvous
2: 87. The NHL All-Stars against the Soviet Union. Coming up.
0: What are your memories of Rendezvous? Freezing cold weekend.
3: <laughs> okay, two of the best hockey games I think I ever played in hmm. in my whole career you look at the talent of the two teams, the Russians at their peak, yep. the fact that they were a team that always played together. So they were, uh, you know, in tune. These guys had played together for forever. You know, Tretyak, Kazitonov. Uh,
0: KLM line, whole KLM lines in them. The
3: KLM line, you know, those six guys right there. Then for me, I was shocked and so honored to be a, to a part of that team. Because of, I, I had so much respect to so many peers that weren't on it. And, and here I come to Quebec and I'm playing with Wayne and Messier, you know, and, and, and I'm sitting there like, wow, what a hockey team. And I remember like going and playing in that first game and we won. Yep. And I was like, this is unbelievable. That, that game, I honestly playing in the Olympics and all star games and Stanley cup finals and everything. I have to say it was the first game where I sat there and being a part of a game and going, I'm in awe. Like I'm in awe of the pace and the skill level of this hockey game. And, and yet I'm like, I got to play in this game. I'm like, <laughs> uh, but, and, 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 you know, just watching the skill and the way the game was played and everything, it was so exciting. And the fact that it came back a split yep. and, uh, I don't know if you can duplicate that or if it work again today, but the best two games I, I think I've ever been involved with. There was still a bit of a mystery
1: at that time, the Russian players. Yes. Was there a guy that you remember playing against that maybe you didn't know and you said, holy – like, I remember watching Valerie Kaminsky and yeah. saying, oh, my God, this guy's really good. Was there anyone like that for you?
3: I honestly was going to say Kamensky. I was like, you know, yeah. there's so much attention and – <laughs> I'd gone to the, as you mentioned, Olympics and when the Russians were uh, on fire and to see them over there. And, you know, we were, you know, we were young and we weren't, you know, obviously the top Canadian team. But then when we bring the NHL best and we play against these guys and we're like, okay, now let's see it, you know? And so I was aware of like Krutov and Makarov and Liranov and these guys from playing against them before and, First of all, talking about them, I never played against players that were so powerful and so hard to defend against in the corners. Mm-hmm. I've never seen players like that. And their leg strength and core strength, Like everyone talks about their skill, but you can't imagine going to corners and trying to play against these guys, uh, their strength, and then you have the skill level on top of that. But Kaminsky was the younger guy, and his size – and uh, his skill level and with the puck and his shooting ability and everything. I was like, I think he was the guy that really caught people off guard.
0: Let me ask you about a one specific player in the 80s as well, as we sort of detour to 80s hockey here. Outside of Wayne Gretzky, no one put up more points in the 80s than Peter Stastny. Uh, playing with the Quebec Nordiques, he would have played against them. And then he goes to New Jersey as well. Do you have any memories of Peter Stastny? Yeah.
3: You know, we th- we never really had so-called like star players in Jersey at the time, like a real hall of fame kind of guy. And so we all started off young there, you know, John McClain, Joe Cerello, Pat Verbee, Brennan Shanahan, myself. And we kind of, you know, started off as, as you know, uh, you know, an organization at the bottom, we had to earn our respect to get better. And over a few years, you know, we, Lou came in and put his mark in the organization and we, you know, we're gaining respect and, and but you know we're missing sort of those key type names and Lou brought in Peter and uh, right away Peter and I and uh, Claude Lemieux played together and we were lying and I thought wow uh, <laughs> I'm, pl- I'm, play- <laughs> I'm I'm playing with a, obviously a future Hall of Famer and I've never battled so hard with two line mates I think we battled and fought harder against each other in, in a good way uh than we did against our opponents (laughs) peter was a perfectionist and he was a heck of a player but every shift you know if you made a play and if you didn't make the right play or find him and i say this in a very respectful way because that's what made him so good you knew that when you got to the bench you know he'd be like kirk i was open you got to give that puck to me (laughs) i'm like I said to him, I said, Peter, see that number nine on the back of my jersey? It's not 99, so you're not, <laughs> you're, you're not going to get the puck the, the amount of times you think you are. So I had Claude on the other side going, hey, I was open." I go... Listen, you two. Like you know what? I, I am mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm in a non-winning situation here. But you know what? Hey, listen, I say that in a fun way that it, they're they're both competitors, and uh, there's a fun line to play with.
0: So you you mentioned number nine there. This is something I've always, I'm glad you got us here because I've always wanted to ask you this one. Your first year with New Jersey, you were number 27 because Don Lever's wearing number nine. Yeah. Was there ever a conversation about, hey, Don, do you think I could wear number nine? that ever happened
3: no i had a lot of respect for don and uh i was like i wore nine you know my pretty much my whole life yeah and uh and you know he's he was a veteran guy and you know we started in jersey with a lot of veteran guys like donnie lever and mel Bridgman and tim higgins and rich press and davy lewis and you know all these guys that were these mentors to us and and uh I was like, "Hey, I'm just happy to be in the NHL." So I I wore 27 Olympics, and they gave me that number. But my greatest nine story is when I got traded to Montreal, and Serge Savard called me and said, "Hey, I just traded you to Montreal," <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I didn't know Serge at all, and I was you know just excited and everything. And he said, "So you know you're going to come up, and you know you're going to, you know meet the Eddie, the, the equipment guy, you will get you set up, all the formality of when you get traded." And I and I don't even know why I said it. I didn't even know surge, and I just said it for a joke. And I said, "Is there any chance I could get nine? And uh, he said to me, "Kirk, do you know the history of the Montreal Canadiens?" <laughs> and I said, "Of course I do." I said, "I said I'm just kidding." But a couple of years, a couple of years later, I go to the All Star game, and now they gave me eleven in Montreal, which is just what they gave me. I had no choice. I was like, "Fine, you know, yeah. you know, I'm gonna wear it." And I played in the All-Star game and it goes by seniority. And, uh, so they said, listen, you're a much all Canadian. The game's in Montreal, but listen, Mark Messier has a seniority. We're going to give him 11 and you're going to wear, uh, nine. We figured you'd like that. I said, yeah, that's awesome. Sure. So what happens to me now? I go up after the game and who's waiting for me? <laughs> True story. Rocket Richard. Ah. And, uh, <laughs> and Rocket calls me over <laughs> and he says, uh, Hey, uh, Kirk, uh, you have a minute? And I said, yeah. And he says, uh, you a habit? And I said, yeah. He says, you wear nine today? And I said, yeah. And he says, don't make it a habit. <laughs> 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 and I walked over to Steve Shutt and I said, uh, I just told him what Rocket told me. And I said, do you think he was kidding? And he said, no, nope. no, no, he was not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was, that was, uh, that was my my nine story with the Rocket. I wanted to ask you about coaching. you want to get back in? Yeah. You know what? I feel blessed that, uh, you know, in honor that be involved in the NHL. And I've been lucky to, to play in it and, uh, and coach in it. And, you know, what makes it special is the people involved in the competition at, at such a pro level and the competitiveness and, Yes. You know what? I, I enjoyed the coach and I enjoyed, uh, you know, when I was in the bubble, I got a taste of the head coaching again from the days I was in uh, Carolina. I think it's just being a part of a group and wanting to win and leading that group is, is just is a lot of fun.
1: Now, I understand that, you know, you've been obviously a head coach. You've been uh, an associate head coach. You've been an assistant coach you want to be a head coach like you want that second
3: opportunity at that job correct yeah you know what it's uh it's the right time i had an opportunity to be the head coach in milwaukee and uh mm-hmm. carolina and uh you know is where i, I feel I, I had a great opportunity from jimmy rutherford to, and uh, ronnie francis to to start there uh and starting head coaching with nashville's organization and, you know, from then, you know, I, I learned some things and uh, that's where I got my experience. But, you know, since then I, I said I, I want to learn from some veteran coaches and, you know, I went to St. Louis and worked with Hitch and saw how he operated and, and uh, you know, we went to the third round and had that great opportunity to to see on a daily basis how, I said earlier, how well he's prepared and the work that he puts in to have a team prepared to play every day, every practice and that, and then uh you know i worked with some more veteran coaches fortunately uh you know michelle terrien when i went back to montreal learned from his type of theories and the way he sees the game and you know with claude julian uh just previously and uh and then went over to the worlds with av and when you look at these a lot of these veteran coaches you know i i had firsthand experience of working with them seeing how they operate taking a lot of great things from everybody and uh and then, you know, having that chance to coach in the bubble and being behind the bench and being the head guy for a series, you know, the confidence was there. And I, I feel like this is the right time for me to, to, uh, to go after it and uh, be a head coach. Okay, here's my last question to you, Kirk. Is
1: there one guy from your career that you battled against that all these years later you're still not friendly with?
3: oh good question uh i will say there's there's not a player that i could run into today and i could say i don't want to see that guy Uh, you know what there's there's like uh dale hunter that man when i played against him he he was we all know he played and you know when i was in the more of the patrick division back in the jersey and Washington days and you know, we, like, I think we still have a record for the most penalty minutes in a series, like Washington, New Jersey. It was vicious. And, uh, you know, I had to go head-to-head with, with him, and then he goes to Quebec and everything. But I, I got a lot of respect for him. Like, I, I, guys like Scott Stevens back then, and, you know, these guys, I mean, if, you, if you're if playing with your head down, you're in trouble. They're not giving you a mercy rule, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but uh, honestly, I, there's not a guy that I, I'm crossing the street. I don't even want to see him. I think I played in a time where the respect was, was there. It was tough. It was good hockey. It was high scoring. But I think because of that respect, I, I don't think I have that for anybody.
0: Okay, last one for me. I want to get your thoughts on coaching three-on-three. Because when three-on-three started, we all loved it because it was, what well, we thought, uncoachable. It was up and down and odd man rushes and coaches would be pulling their hair out on the bench. Coaches now very much have their hooks in the three-on-three. Kirk, from a coach's point of view, what do you do with three-on-three?
3: Yeah, good question. Well, you know what? You look at three-on-three, a few things that come into play. You know what? Do you want to get your best face-off guy out to win the first face-off? So you start off with possession because you know that if you do the percentage of goals scored on three-on-three, on three, a high percentage of them are scored on the rush, guys missing the net, and line changes. The Bad line changes are a big part of three-on-three, three, which are correctable. It's interesting. Five-on-five five hockey, what do you tell your guys? Go to the net, get the rebound, drive to the net. But, you know, in three-on-three three hockey, you think, listen, you'd want to move the puck around to get that, that shot because – you know, not too often, it's not, uh, not too obviously, it's always from a rebound and all that. So you got two, one guy shooting, another guy going in the net. If he misses it, guess what? It's a two on one the other way. Yep. So you got to be real careful on your shot selection on three on three, missing the net, goalie pops it out, easy rebound, Where you go. And, uh, so there are scenarios right there. And then I think a big part of it is, is a responsibility with coaches is to say, Hey, listen, uh before a game. Our goalie's awesome at uh, shootouts. Uh, their guy perhaps isn't. Uh, our record on shootouts is strong or poor. Our opponents are strong or poor. So maybe we should sit back a little bit and we're a better team tonight, percentage-wise, to maybe score, win the game on our shootouts. We got three great shooters. We got a great goalie. Uh, let's play back. Let's play a little bit more of a zone. Or you're you're the opposite, you know, your type of coach, you know, you look at it and you go, we're, we're really struggling on, on our shootouts, our confidence, uh, guys aren't scoring. You know what? Let's go three forwards. Let's go for it. Let's go for the home run. Hmm. Let's go uh, try to win it. I think all those intangibles, I think, are, are ways that, you know, you kind of approach uh, a three-on-three hockey.
0: Okay, let me ask you this final wrap-up then. It looks to me sometimes like teams are just holding on to the puck, waiting for either a uh, A bad switch on the other side, or a bad line change, and that's when they pounce. How accurate is that?
3: Well, exactly what I was saying you know it's uh, if you're aware of it, and, and again it's you know in the zone you know if you got if you get that long change and if you're a smart hockey player, you're sitting on the bench, you're watching how long the other team's guys are on the ice, so that you know if you get out there and they they're struggling and you outchange change them, and now you're fresh. You're in the offensive zone, and you know that as soon as it's popped out, they're racing for that change. <laughs> and if you could counter quick, I mean, that, to me, that's a smart hockey player. You're like, so, you know, that's why, you know, you pay attention on the bench. You know, you watch the game. So you watch who can't get off. And so when you go on the ice, you're, are you going against three fresh guys? You're going against a D that's exhausted. He's got that long change. He can't get off. Yeah. So you bite, you know, you, you sell it a little bit. You bring it back in a neutral zone. You hope some guy bites on it, goes for the change, and then you go for it, you know. So, so there's uh there's a lot of smart hockey players in the HL and I would say there's a lot of little things that would happen that for three on three hockey.
0: That's a great answer. Okay, Grandpa, we spent enough time with you today. <laughs> thanks, uh thanks so much, Kirk, for stopping by today. We really appreciate it.
3: Yeah, great chat with you guys. Great chat with you. We'll all enjoy the the playoffs coming
0: up. And there it is, our conversation with Kirk Muller, someone too good to be out of the game for much longer. Wonder if one of those vacancies ends up filled uh, by Kirk Muller. We thank him for joining us on this week's edition of 31 Thoughts, the podcast. Uh, Taking us out today, a three-piece band from Vernon, British Columbia, who now call Vancouver home. Singer Aiden Andrews and twin brother rhythm section Carson and Nolan Bassett making up the band Desorme carving out a unique space in modern alternative music with their latest single here's desorme with the trend of 31 thoughts the podcast
2: keep your eyes shut keep your head down waiting for ages it's painless all this noise talking about